0: Good evening, everybody. I'm Trey Grayson. I'm the director of the Institute of Politics. And on behalf of the staff, the students, the senior advisory committee of the Institute of Politics and everybody else here at Harvard, we want to welcome you to our quadrennial, I love that word, uh, campaign decision makers conference. We've been doing this since 1972. Um, A lot of people in this room weren't even born in (laughs) 1972. Um, And so we're really excited to, to bring everybody together to preserve for history for scholars for future campaign folks um, the story of the 2012 election Uh, and so I want to thank especially all the folks who were involved in in those campaigns and in covering those campaigns for for coming today and we're looking forward to a a great uh, great uh, conversation tomorrow and we're gonna begin a little bit tonight also wanted to make note there are a bunch of students who are here in the audience um, undergraduates and graduate students that's why we're here at the IOPs for the students so if you guys could welcome them I was, uh, I was class of 94 here at the IOP and was one of the student leaders, but I guess I wasn't enough of a leader to get invited <laughs> after the 92 election. So I'm really excited. This is the first time I've been part of this. So, uh, so maybe some of the students can grow up and become the IOP director too. But you've got to r- lose to, I guess, Ron Paul's grandson <laughs> to be in a position to, uh, to do this. <laughs> Um, there's been a lot of uh, hard work put into this and uh, con- continuing staff involvement over the next day or so And I want to point out a couple of staff members. So those who need assistance with Logistics and things like that um, you can go to a couple of these folks for help. So Christian Flynn. Where's Christian? Christian's over. Stand up Christian All of you are here because the logistics work with Christian. So thank you Christian. Uh Casey O'Neill is Casey. Uh, Casey's in the back. Casey and Kathy McLaughlin. Who? Where's Kathy. Where's Kathy. Well, is she there? okay. Stand up, Kathy. I know everybody here knows you, but stand up. So, so if you need anything, you can reach out to Casey, Christian, Kathy, me, or anybody else that you see that looks like we might be IOP staff, uh, and and uh, we'll we'll try to help you all out. Um, just as a reminder, because of the uniqueness of these proceedings, we do ask that everybody respect the embargo that we put on the proceedings until the materials are released. Now, this year, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to have an audio podcast uh, that we're going to record. It won't be one long podcast. We'll have each discussion will be its own discrete. Um, um, section and we're gonna release those fairly shortly so the embargo will not last as long as in past years when we were waited for the book to come out but that I think will preserve the ability to have really good discussions tomorrow and tonight uh, and then because of the shortness of the embargo we'll get a chance to get those stories out into the public um, in the correct and uh, in, in full context format so we're really excited about this thanks again to everybody for coming um, I'd like to introduce Rick Burke uh, Rick's a member of the Senior Advisory Committee uh, of the institute and has been a real help to me in this job and prior to that when I actually served with him on the Senior Advisory Committee. He's the Assistant Managing Editor of the New York Times and Rick and Dan Balls are going to take it from here. Uh, Dan's with the Washington Post uh, and begin some discussions tonight uh, that will kick off and lead to tomorrow. So Rick and Dan. Great. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much, Trey. Um, Trey mentioned Uh, that this started in 1972. No one else has ever done anything like it. There's been imitators all over the place, but no one liked the IOP. That book that you get months later is a real historic record of these campaigns. And what I was wondering when when Trey mentioned 1972 is what was that like? Um, Can you imagine the Nixon and McGovern groups in this room? (laughs) Now, what I want to know is, was anyone in this room, there are a lot of old timers around here, Anyone in this room who was there then, raise your hand. All right, tell us what it was... What, what, what was it like? Was Haldeman here? Was... <laughs> <laughs> you got to give me more than that. Any, was anyone else but Frank here? Anyone else? You were the senior... Frank Ferenkopf, stand up. You were the senior... <laughs> But Kathy, you must have the book somewhere that would show seventy two in the discussion, but they probably missed out on the real drama which was happening behind the scenes you know and unfolded in the in the years hence um, but the let me just say these events are um, wonderful but also not so wonderful for people like me uh, and many of the reporters here because we all want to hear. All these secrets from the campaign, and we all want—we want you guys from the campaigns to spill, spill your guts. But then, if you do, and we didn't have it, then we look bad. So it's kind of a mixed thing. So we want to hear stories, but um, we will be angry if you didn't tell us things that we needed to know in real time. So that's kind of our dilemma for reporters. Um, one person who loved our our departed esteemed colleague David Broder loved coming to these things, and my favorite quote from him after one of these was um, after the 96 election um, when he said, quote, obviously the 1996 campaign was not a classic. That was the understated, (laughs) Dan's understated colleague. Um, And now this one, I would say, it wasn't historic like the one four years ago. But it was a pretty – I would call it a classic And in terms of the surprises and the things that we didn't expect. Um, think about the speculation two or three years ago. How many of you in this room would have expected – if I'd asked you two or three years ago if someone representing the Sarah Palin campaign would be here tonight, raise your hand if you would have expected them here tonight. Oh, come on. I don't believe that. <laughs> See, a bunch of you, yeah, a bunch primary. of you, in the pr- primary, primary, primary. Ron Brown's, yeah, primary. raise your hand. Yeah. There is no one, I don't think there's anyone in this room who, is, uh, who represents Sarah Palin who's in this room tonight. And so the world has changed from what we expected. And, <laughs> and, 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 just, and I just did some looking back to where things were two, three years ago. Romney was on the top of all of the... Um, the pundits, all the political people saying everyone knew that he would be running, but um, but there was, um, but there were more people we thought would run than actually ran. Remember Huckabee, Barber, um, Jindal, Bush, Jeb Bush, Giuliani, um, Mitch Daniels, uh, Condoleezza Rice, none of those people are represented here. Um, and, one of my favorites on the list that popped up was Paul Ryan. Now, can you imagine if he had run and the debates and what he, what he and Mitt Romney would have been saying about each other in that debate? Think how the, the history of the whole campaign could have been different. Um, Scott Brown was on that list, early speculation that he would run, run for president. And let me just say one other thing about Sarah Palin. We were so, so sure that she would be a factor in this campaign that a certain brilliant editor at the New York Times, that was me, um, went to the executive editor, Jill Abramson, that's her, and I said, shouldn't we get a full-time Sarah Palin reporter and we'll be ahead of everyone? And you know what Jill said? Great idea, Rick. You know, but, but the world changed so fast that we didn't end up doing that. Although I remember Jim Rutenberg... And a crew of Jim, are you here? Raise your hand. And a crew of other reporters flew to Alaska to um, to remember when they released her emails from um, from her governorship because we everyone took her very seriously. Now, my all-time favorite on the list of people um, who were thinking of who were talked about um, two three years ago that just popped up on this list was David Petraeus. Now, just imagine that, and imagine how much fun that would have been for all of us. Now, um, so, um, but but I, I just also want to say this campaign will be re- remembered for a lot of things, not just nine 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 or the um, Obama debate or forty seven percent or Clint Eastwood, but just a lot of, and not only um, the surprises. Uh, this was the one campaign that I remember where just everyone who stayed in the race had their moment in the sun, it seemed like. Just about everyone was a front runner for at least a day or two. And I'd never seen that before. It was also the campaign of the super PACs. I think fact checking proliferated in a way we've never seen before, truth squatting the campaigns. Um, more polling, if you could believe that that could ever happen. Dottie, did you ever think there'd be even more polling? Right right <laughs> so now um we're now, as we start launching into our examination of all this, I just want to say to or advise all the the campaign people who so um, uh, graciously decided to attend to this event that um, we're all looking for um, candor and uh tight uh remarks because we all see through campaign spin and this this event has never been an event for bloviators or spinning or whatever so just tell the truth you can settle some scores if you want we like that but but keep it tight tell the truth Um, give us some secrets but not secrets that will embarrass the reporters in the room so if you could do all that that would be great Um, now to lead us off is my colleague Dan Balls, who's um, one of the most respected and fair-minded journalists in America today. So, Dan, take it
2: away. Uh, thank you, Rick. I'm going to throw fair-mindedness to the, to the winds tonight and, uh, and uh, be edgy in all the things that nobody, <laughs> nobody thinks I really am or can be. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and as for secrets that embarrass us, we're prepared for that. So if you, you know, you, you've, you've spent most of the last year and a half trying to embarrass us in one way or another and think that we've tried to spend the last year and a half trying to embarrass you guys in, in one way or another. So I would say we should all have at it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to be uh, a part of this opening ceremony of this great tradition. Um, I want to I echo what others have said and just to say thank you to everybody from the IOP that – uh, has worked so hard to to make this the event that it is it's you know it's one of those events that everybody w- who's been involved in the campaign on whatever side you're involved wants to be at uh... And it's it's a, both a homecoming and a, and a moment to kind of relive everything um, it's you know it's it's in large form what we often do at night at the end of the campaign day uh... which is to gather with you know people from the campaign and compare notes and and uh... and talk a little bit off the record um, and as uh, allegedly, Mrs. Graham, Catherine Graham once said, uh, what does off the record mean? It means uh, we don't do anything with it unless it's just too good. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, it's, it's great that, the, that, the, that students are here from Harvard. I want to, uh, I want to single out one in particular. Uh, tomorrow you will all get uh, this. If you haven't gotten it already, it is a timeline of events um, of what happened over the last two years. It was put together by Sam Adams, who's a Harvard student who I've been working with. Uh, I've been working with Sam over the last year and a half on this uh, project and some other things. Um, he's a little bit unnerved to see his name on the front of the book, um, but, uh, but he's done a fabulous job. And uh, you, will, you will enjoy reliving this campaign line by line. And there are a lot of things in there that I'm sure you have forgotten. So, um, we have a lot of ground to cover tonight. Uh, we have 11 campaigns that we want to hear from. Um, the, the, the rules of the road are basically that each campaign will be asked, uh, one person from each campaign, to tell us a little bit about what the opening strategy was, uh, where things were at the beginning of the campaign. Um, we've, we've asked people, as Rick said, to keep it brief. Uh, Rick will be the timekeeper. He looks like he's a very nice guy, but for those of us who competed against him over the years, uh, we know he's got a mean streak, so don't cross him tonight on, the, on the running long. Uh, we want to get out of here by midnight, no later than that, uh, so we'll go. Um, uh, they say there are no do-overs in life. Um, tonight is do-over night. Um, tomorrow you'll all have to explain what went wrong, uh, what didn't work out. Uh, tonight we are interested um, you know in in where things were at the beginning in a sense tonight you're all potential winners Uh, this is where the campaign started Um, we are asking each person from the campaign to step back and recreate for us the thinking inside the operation as you sketched out your strategy what was the rationale what was the path to victory Uh, we would like to get if we can uh, a better sense of the analysis that obviously ended with your particular candidate becoming the nominee of the republican party or perhaps uh... taking the oath in january uh... or for others perhaps a campaign that would end with somebody being the host of a new cable talk show um, or 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 in the case of of mark blocker pitchman for a tobacco company so uh, <laughs> um, to prod the conversation along i'm going to pose a question to to each campaign that will go to complement the basic idea that we want to learn about the strategy. Um, we are going in no particular order other than that the Romney and Obama campaigns will be the last we will hear from tonight. They will clean up in this. Um, other than that uh, I didn't have a particular sense of how we should do this. Um, but because Tim Palenti was the first out, um, Phil Musser from the Pawlenty campaign will be the first at bat tonight. So Phil, the uh, floor is yours. Um, yeah, y'all can just stay where you, stand where you are. We'll get a mic to you. We'll get a so. First
3: in, first out,
1: baby.
2: <laughs> <laughs> How did I know that was
4: coming, Dan? I talked to Plenty this afternoon. I was driving across Massachusetts and I said, you know, Governor, I'm going to this thing you've, 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 you've boldly nominated me for. Uh, you know what? What should I say? He said, "Look, my campaign lasted for 30 seconds, so pack it into 30 seconds, Musser." <laughs> so I'll be brief. Um, but I'll try and kind of frame a little bit of the thinking that you uh, that you asked us to do, Dan, and talk about that. And thanks for having us here. Um, you know, for us, uh, Paleniy started very early. Uh, if you think if you think back to it, uh, you know, Tim uh, started laying the groundwork to run for president, in, you know, early uh, late late 2009. And I think you know, essentially, probably prodded. Uh, Matt and the Romney team into kind of a more kind of proactive forward-leaning focus with their own pack. So we were a casing study of a campaign that got in really early. Uh, I was a successful uh, two-term governor from a blue state who had proven his ability to win with independence. The Sam's Club message, I think, was attractive and appealing to a demographic that we thought we needed to win with and we could win with. Um, from a perspective of our uh, uh, of a policy accomplishment. We thought uh, plenty and had a very strong record with respect to accomplishments in pension reform, health care, education, a lot of really good things to talk about. And he's just about the lo- most likable, nice, genuine, decent human being that you could possibly find. And we thought that would play well relative to the retail politics required in the early states of Iowa and New Hampshire. So. Um, We went about the business uh, through 29 and 2010, I think, of trying to build a diligent through the invisible primary phase of, you know, leveraging uh, our role at the RGA, uh, leveraging our travel around the country to build relationships where we didn't have them. Tim's biggest challenge was he was largely unknown outside the state of Minnesota, but for the brief 2008 flirtation with vice president. And we we sought to build what we would call the Ford Taurus model presidential campaign, which was, a uh, modestly budgeted, appropriately scaled campaign that had the depth and scale to be able to grow uh, when application of money and attention focused on it. Um, And so as we came into the early months uh, of uh, March uh, and February of 2011, uh, kind of the two things that I'd highlight, one of which was touched on, was the early going was extraordinarily difficult because in our view, the Romney campaign probably had about 30% of market share locked up Uh, that we figured they'd have, and we figured that was roughly corollary, if not slightly greater, with the financial commitment. Uh, But what we had real trouble with, and what everybody who wasn't Romney had real trouble with, late in 2008, in 2010, after the elections, uh, was locking down major whale financial supporters. Romney moved quickly with a very aggressive, very focused, very well-led exercise to lock down big financial contributors. They looked down the road, they set up a super PAC very wisely and smartly. Laws allowed for that this go-round that didn't, I think, four years ago, uh, which I say for some experience. Um, and, uh, and so they, they, they came into the position of competing for financial uh, donors was a real challenge uh, for us. But nonetheless, we came to the starting blocks in this race thinking that we had uh, some regional association. Tim was an evangelical con- conservative. He had a record that was attractive and appealing to conservatives. We thought we were the elective, electable alternative to Romney, and that ultimately when the party looked around besides Mitt, that if we were standing and we were in a position to finance and grow, that that was uh, the right place to be. And so uh, I don't think we're supposed to go into what we did uh, wrong until tomorrow. But, uh, <laughs> but Terry Branstad is a wise man. Um, so, uh, and so is Nick Ryan. Uh, so uh, anyway, that was our mindset coming into the game, Dan.
2: Let me ask you just one quick follow-up, Phil, and that is, was there any other option that you thought might be possible than the, other than the, <clears throat> excuse me, what I would call the slow and steady idea and the, and the sort of notion that if you could become everybody's second favorite candidate, then you could emerge? Was there any other alternative that you thought about that might have made sense?
4: We didn't want to say it. We didn't want to call ourselves the second, second place kind of strategy candidate, but we were the second place strategy candidate. We just never gave that the time to play out. Um... It, you know, isn't great to be, you know, going to your donors and say, "Hey, look, we're the second place guy. You know, <laughs> get on board with this bus." Yeah, you know. Uh, and I had to do a lot of the pitching, so it was it, it was hard. But uh, no, look, we, we we believe that when uh, when that that slow and steady would ultimately pay dividends, and that the spade work in the grassroots effort uh, in Iowa, uh, in particular, uh, and subsequently we've had a great team in New Hampshire. Uh, could have provided us probably the uh, you know, the platform for growth at the right time and, and, and I think had we had uh, an up elevator lift out of the June debate as opposed to a collapse after a, l- launching the campaign with a, what I thought was a good announcement, a whether you agree with the policy or not, an ambitious growth policy agenda, the next plan was to ramp that up leading into uh, into um, that debate, and that debate was a, obviously a critical moment for our campaign, uh, but then, you know, a funny thing happened along the way in the circus, and Nahigian and his bus, and Michelle Bachman showed up, and uh, that that undercut the Iowa straw poll strategy, which for those of you who have done the Iowa straw poll, you just don't wake up and think about and do it. I mean, Nahigian and the Michelle Bachman team put together a straw poll caucus at incredible speed, and won it in an incredibly short period of time, but the Ron Paul people, our people, have been working on that since essentially February. And it's not something that you can kind of get half pregnant on and then pull back on because you guys would have just killed us in the boom of expectations. And so, um, you know, we can discuss the decisions going forward there. But, yeah, Dan, we, the, the, the quiet thinking was if we can be alive and then get the spotlight and have a, a, the architecture of a campaign that is, the you know, the Ford Taurus to the, to the Romney Mercedes, then we can, you know, we could, we could grow.
2: Okay. Good. Thank you. Um, next, we'll do the Ron Paul campaign. Trigvi, where are you? Trigvi Olson.
5: Notice it's the Romney Alliance here already <laughs> with the Paul people. <laughs> <laughs> <I> Road tonight, <laughs> it's just like old times for me. Uh, so. so uh, up until the convention, it's nice that we can all be friends again. No, um, so to to work off of your your email a little bit, you know, we started out the campaign uh, or the Paul campaign started out. You know, it really was was a continuation of what started in 2008, and in some ways, um, it was a campaign about Ron Paul, but it, it was equally sort of movement politics in some ways. Um, during the course of of 2008 through 2012. You know, the broader Ron Paul entities raised over $100 million, um, which probably surprises a lot of people. So, as we were sitting looking at the campaign from the outset, um, we kind of felt like raising money, unlike Phil's situation, was not really going to be an issue. And I, as sort of the establishment guy who is somewhat new to Ron Paul world, found it a little bit disturbing because, you know, I would say to them, well, we don't have any money in the bank. And they'd be, like, oh, don't worry, we're going to money bomb, we'll have a million dollars by uh, Tuesday. <laughs> So um one strategic assumption was that that other than Mitt Romney's campaign we would have uh the second most money to spend. We knew that we weren't going to be able to match uh Romney in terms of big dollar donors, but we also knew that we had a lot of people that would give repeat donations based on ideas. Second sort of strategic assumption that we had is is that um uh that you know, there were a lot of people in the early primary states, particularly Iowa, who were not well informed with who Ron Paul was. Even though Ron Paul was a national figure, you know, when I first came on the campaign, which was in in March of 2011, we had, we went and did some polling, which wasn't something that they had done a lot of. And in Iowa, um, we discovered 50% of Iowa Republicans assumed Ron Paul was pro choice. Um, and here he is, a doctor who's delivered. 4,000 babies in his pro-life. So we looked at the campaign and we thought there's some real opportunities to sort of reinvent uh, or educate people on Ron Paul, hence the importance of good advertising um, to the campaign, which was something that I think you know we really tried to do. Um, Iowa and New Hampshire, we had a long debate about whether Iowa was going to be the place that we'd play or New Hampshire. That obviously had strategic implications for us in terms of how we would interact with other candidates. Ultimately, when Polanyi got out of the race, um, we decided that Iowa was the place where we really had a shot at winning. Obviously, that meant that the people that we were competing with and the people that you know, we thought we could get 20 to 25%, but in order for us to get there, we knew Romney was going to have an establishment percent. That meant when Newt Gingrich rises, Herman Cain rises, Rick Perry rises, Michelle Bachman rises, we felt like we had to take them down because we had a ceiling of 25%. We knew Romney was going to be somewhere in that range. We didn't really have the opportunity to let anybody get to 30 So we were constantly trying to take people down, but we didn't share any, and this was an assumption from the outset, we didn't play on the establishment field. Establishment Republicans weren't going to vote for Ron Paul. Tea Party Republicans, potentially. Social conservatives, potentially, definitely libertarians. Um... We had four basic strategic goals. One, get as many delegates. Can I? Can I I'm sorry
1: to interrupt because that's my role to interrupt. And that, that is, um, I just want to know. You, you said you're not. He wasn't a mainstream candidate. Did you ever think internally that you could win the nomination?
5: Well, the, what I would say is from the outset, uh, and you know, first conversations that we had had with Ron, the goal was to get as many delegates as possible. They felt like if you could get to a position where it was a one-on-one race with somebody, you never know what's going to happen. You know? But
1: did, did you or Ron Paul ever say in Did your I or, Ron Paul or, or did Ron Paul? or any of the people say, if we do this and this, we can win the nomination? Or was that just a sort of dream that you, you know? Well, I
5: think, I think there, within the professional political class within Ron Paul's world, there was a realization that it was a long shot for Ron Paul to get the nomination. Um, that so you
1: never, you never really expected to get the nomination. I mean, just be real. Let's just be realistic here.
5: <laughs> what I would say is, I mean, the, the strategic objective from the outset was to get as many votes as possible. What I would say is, did Ronald Reagan expect in 1968, or you know, to get the nomination? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Frank. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes,
1: he did. And and, and and I'm sorry to cut you off, but tomorrow yeah. we'll have plenty of time okay. to go over. The strategy. Okay. Yep.
2: No, but uh, but I but I do have a, a, a further follow-up and that is to what extent, Trigby, was was the goal of the campaign uh, to in essence mainstream Ron Paul's ideas into the party? And what well, was, that, the, that, what was that, the strategy right. of that? And that, that obviously connected with your Goal to get as many delegates as possible, I
5: see. One, so three, four strategic goals. One, get as many delegates as possible. Two, to create a platform where Ron Paul could talk about his ideas. Obviously, the professional political class would have preferred he stick more to debt and deficit, devaluation of the dollar, and defense of liberties. He decided that he would like to talk about defense policy <laughs> and foreign <laughs> intervention, which was more problematic. <laughs> because it was incongruent with the Republican primary electorate. Um, third, Ron believed very, and this is, I think is important, Ron believed that the young people that were coming out who were libertarian belong in the Republican Party and that, that he needed to contest this campaign in part to say to the Republican Party, uh, libertarians are an important part of a winning coalition for you. You know, you want 5,000 people to show up at the young people to show up at the University of Wisconsin. If your name isn't Barack Obama, Ron Paul can get that. I don't think there's any other Republican candidate here who can get that. He thinks that's important, but at the same time, he wanted to say to libertarians, "There's a home in the Republican Party for you. You can go to the convention." Last strategic goal was to create a, a and leave his movement as part of a coalition and the libertarian part of the coalition with more leaders, and that gets confused a lot with like. Rand Paul 2016 or 2020. But it was not just about Rand Paul. Rand Paul clearly will be a leader of the, of the libertarian movement. But it's also about electing people like Thomas Massey in Kentucky, another libertarian, Justin Amash, and really trying to build a, what he views as you know, a longer term effort of what should be an important part of a revamped Republican coalition. And so, while he may not have felt like, I'm going to get that my time is now, um, and that that was a long shot, um, he didn't feel like he was any more of a long shot, let's be quite frank, than anybody other than Mitt Romney uh, after Tim Pawlenty got out of the race. I mean, the truth is, there's a 99% chance that, that, and I don't mean to offend any of the other candidates, all the rest of this was semantics from our perspective, Mitt Romney was likely to be the nominee. And and so, th- th- you know, did Ron Paul have less of a chance, really, than Herman Kane who got a lot more coverage? Or, and so that would be my answer to your question.
2: Well, we will turn now to <laughs> Mark Block to answer that question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mark, I mean, not, uh, King, Mark King off King off what Rick asked Trigvi. Um, <clears throat> it is hard to imagine that there was a sense within the Kane campaign that Herman Cain was going to become the Republican nominee. So what was the... Bullshit. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Then explain to us what that path was. Uh,
4: We might need a little technical.
6: There you go. And I say that in all due respect. (laughs) And I will, we all got an email from Dan earlier to keep this under five minutes and Dan, you know how long it takes to smoke a cigarette? (laughs) About four and a half minutes. <laughs> we always felt that Cain could win the nomination. Cain's candidacy really came about on April 15, 2009. And I have to give say hello to our governor from Wisconsin, Jim Doyle, because he helped, um, actually, the Cain campaign explode in Wisconsin. The Tea Party movement really was the gist of the Cain candidacy. In April 15, 2009, when we saw this movement explode and Cain was giving speeches across the country to Tea Party groups, to business groups, and those that have heard him talk, he's a very motivational speech, speaker. He would always be asked, you should run for president, you should run for president. Now, I had known Mr. Cain for eight years now. And the deputy director, Linda Hansen had been working with him for about three years. And we kept encouraging him to consider it, think about it. As you went through the 2009 and this Tea Party movement, by the way, if anybody here tells you they know what the Tea Party movement is, they're lying to you, right? Because I don't think anybody, including the media, has really got a handle on what that movement is. I remember telling Amy that during the campaign, and I think she looked at me like I was crazy. I still don't think we know what the Tea tea Party movement is, but it was that movement that propelled Mr. Kane as he kept looking at whether he should run or not to do it, because of the response that he got. Let
2: me me just briefly interject. If you didn't know what that movement was, how did you think you could in some way either capture it or give voice to it?
6: When you have 15,000 people show up at the lakefront in Milwaukee for a rally, you know there's, a, there's something out there. You really don't know what it is, all right? And a, t- a typical tea party person, I still don't think has been defined yet. It's the kind of crowds that, were being, that would come to hear Herman Cain talk, the type of donors that would encourage him to do it. So as we walked through this process, and we had a six-stage process before he made the final decision to run, every time we hit one of these, it was positive, go forward. He himself would tell you that he wanted to become a candidate because, at that point in time when he made the decision, was over Christmas in 2010. Is that um, he didn't think that the Republican Party really had a candidate that could win, and he felt that he could do it.
2: Well, in, in that case, I mean, if you had that kind of confidence, what was the path that would get you to the nomination?
6: Um. I have to give credit to David Plouffe and Audacity to Win, all right? Because that was standard reading on anybody who came on, on the staff. And we followed their blueprint, just like in Wisconsin, Governor, we followed the Colorado blueprint and flipping the state of Wisconsin. We followed a lot of the stuff in Audacity to Win. People would ask me, what are you doing in Bismarck, North Dakota, in February when you should be in Iowa? And I'm sure all the other campaigns would say, You guys, you should be in Iowa. Our strategy was to work a lot of the back states, the back end, and get those locked down, come into Iowa, and we made a strategic decision not to compete in the Iowa caucuses, and to concentrate on Florida, which we'll get into tomorrow. And that strategy worked. Strategy worked.
2: It worked in what sense?
6: (laughs) (laughs) We came out of Florida as a winner.
2: You mean in the uh, straw poll?
6: The straw poll, right. yeah.
2: Right. But, um, but there, I mean, there's, had you studied the Giuliani campaign late state strategy from four years earlier? I mean, the notion that you can ignore the early states. We
6: didn't ignore them, Dan. I didn't say we ignored them. Yeah. All right. We just spent a lot of time early on in a lot of the other states because we felt that the Keynes. I guess um, the
2: question I'm trying to get at, Mark, is you've got to win somewhere first. Where where did you think your first win would be?
6: We thought we would win Iowa, and New Hampshire, and Florida, and North Carolina. And I think if he would have been South Carolina, I think if he would have stayed in the race, we would have won those. All
2: right. Well, we will find out more about that tomorrow. Uh, Thank you. Um, Matt David from the Huntsman campaign. Matt, where are you?
7: Thank you, Dan. Unfortunately, there wasn't uh, a big secret behind our strategy. It was, uh, it was New Hampshire robust, and we experienced the latter. Um, we, uh, we knew we needed, to do, we needed two things to be successful in New Hampshire. First, we needed a decent media budget to improve our, uh, our name ID, which was approximately zero in New Hampshire. And number two, we needed someone to emerge um, to the right of Mitt Romney that posed a legitimate threat. And would force him to defend his conser- conservative credentials, and would effectively move him to the right. And if it, that if that happened, it would open up a, open up a very even though narrow, it would open up a path for us in New Hampshire to his left. Um, so we needed that to happen. We we didn't we never felt like we could ne- necessarily win New Hampshire because Romney's lock on the state, but we felt like we could finish a strong second or a very close third which would give us a little bit of momentum heading down into South Carolina. Now, the campaign, we never really thought we could win South Carolina, but we thought we could play defense. We thought we could fracture that moderate vote and prevent Romney from winning. And if we could do that, we could get down to Florida, and it could be a wide-open race. What we would need ultimately, though, would be for conservatives to give us a a second look or a first look in reality. (laughs) Um, And to do that, they would have to look past his service in in the Obama administration. But we felt like, given his conservative governing record in Utah, that we might be able to get over that hurdle.
1: Let me just ask, who besides Romney were you most fearful of?
7: Our focus was on Romney.
1: But was there one other person you were just eyeing? More
7: we knew closer? to get to get the nomination, you had to go through Romney, period.
2: Matt, my, my question, and I think probably a lot of people who covered the campaign, is this. Was this always essentially a campaign in search of a candidate who never quite became that candidate. I mean, that, that you guys did a lot of spade work before he ever came back from China. You had figured out kind of what you thought made the most sense based on what you thought Huntsman would be. Um, he seemed like he was not always the most uh, you know, committed to the idea that you guys had. Can you give us any insight into kind of in that early stage, as, as you guys first laid it out to him, what, what was his level of enthusiasm, uh, belief that it worked? or reservations about kind of what you guys had already put in place?
7: That's so a, it's a really good question. Um, <laughs> there weren't any reservations initially. Um, what I can say that we honestly struggled with was finding a message that he was comfortable delivering and one that resonated with the Republican electorate. And so we struggled with, you know, whether we were the truth teller, you know, for a couple months in the middle of the summer, um, and then we kind of switched to the policy um, Simpson-Bowles and break up the banks, which are great policies, and you can put big rib- ribbons around them, but they weren't the tip of the sword that the electric wanted in this cycle. So uh, it, it's a very good question, and it's something we struggled with. I think at the end, we kind of caught our stride. Um, the very last debate, literally three days before the New Hampshire election, was our was our best debate, but it was it was frankly too late in the game. Okay.
2: Okay. Um. Let me ask you just one more question on this, and that is, <clears throat> did you misjudge the state of the Republican Party?
7: Dan's got a lot of good questions.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> um,
7: yeah, time. <laughs> <laughs> um, Touché. <laughs> we. I, Honestly, we we may have. I think we believed that a moderate could make it through the Republican primary. Um, he did. And <laughs> fair enough.
1: Without, without, that,
7: fair that enough. That was Carl fair, Forty for actually, the record. Actually, frankly, it's a very fair point. But without sacrificing anything in the process, yeah. which would make them very competitive in a general election. Yeah. And that was our premise, and we tried to stick to that sometimes. We were better at it than, than others, but that was our premise.
2: Good. Thank you, Matt. Uh, Vince Haley for the Gingrich campaign. Uh, thanks, Dan.
8: Um, in the case of the Gingrich campaign, we didn't tell the candidate what the deal was. He told us what his strategy was.
4: <laughs>
8: <laughs> and, yeah, many, many <laughs> yeah, many times. Yeah, many times. But the conception of the cam- campaign right from the beginning was that this was going to be – that what we wanted to do was to run a change election against President Obama. That's where we wanted to end up. Therefore, we're going to run a change election in the primaries. It was not going to be a, um, a referendum election. It was going to be a change election. Therefore, the question was, what are the set of solutions uh, that we were going to offer to the country uh, to change the country? And, you know, obviously analysts talk about this as a country ready for change. Clearly knew it was going to run a change election. And so – you know, we offered a set of policy solutions. You know, I was the policy director at the beginning of the campaign. You know, had a hands full. We talked about judges. We talked about uh, brain research. Uh, the idea behind creating a broad framework of solutions was to try to enlarge the primary electorate. Uh, Gingrich didn't believe that he could – he was going to have a better shot if that primary electorate was enlarged and bringing in new voters into the Republican primary that had never voted for. So that was the design of the election from the beginning. Um, all the way through the ups and downs of the summer. Um, What ultimately, and this strategy also, um, right from the beginning, was always explicitly going to be 100% positive. And um, through the debates and in a lot of gatherings, public gatherings, public debates, uh, non-presidential debates, but especially in Iowa, um, Gingrich resorted to effectively a strategy of praising the other candidates to great uh, reception uh, by the crowds in Iowa. And you also saw this in the debates. And while I don't think it was also an explicit strategy in the debates, he also, uh, at, at many times, was very willing to aggressively uh, challenge the the bias of the, the debate questions. And yeah, that I was
2: going to say it was 100% positive, except for debate moderators.
8: Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that effectively became a, a strategy, if you will, over time. And did we think we could win? Yes, we thought we could win. Um, it looked very bleak over the summer. Um, in terms of the states we were focused on, clearly... Iowa and uh, South Carolina, we, we knew we would always have a, a long haul winning in New Hampshire. And uh, slowly and steadily he rose in the fall based upon this positive solutions-oriented uh, uh, approach. And then also in the, in the debates, he also used the opportunity, things that were contemporary, for example, the, uh, the super committee. He would aggressively challenge the super committee um, as an idea and offer practical solutions on how you'd come up with the, whatever the savings were they were trying to find.
2: Let me ask a follow-up. Karen Tumulty, my colleague, who I think understands Gingrich better than anybody else in the room, um, and and who had endless conversations with him at various downs and ups, but usually after the downs. Um, I remember after the, after the departure of the first staff, um, he had come up with ideas about how he was going to build a coalition uh, that simply defied the logic of what we had seen in every previous campaign, uh, what pet owners and you know th- things like that. Um, did <laughs> did you all did you all accept that that was a viable path, or was this that as you said at the beginning, Newt designed the campaign he wanted to run and he was bound and determined to run it?
8: Well, you, you mentioned pet owners, so I might as well address that. <laughs> <laughs> and you know. To, to get your newspapers sold or your, your media sold you have to pick the most scintillating example but it, <laughs> what he was trying to illustrate is that he wanted to have non-traditional conversations with the public and the you know to great critique by conservatives the obama campaign did this in spades they were having president obama in lots of different venues and talking in lots of non-traditional ways that for conservatives, we weren't comfortable with. So pets would be an outlandish example. But, for example, Newt often went to zoos, and he talked to reporters at zoos. Well, it turns out there are more people who go to zoos in this country than, than go to professional sporting events. So um, he wanted to, to, to carry on a conversation in the, outside the context strictly of politics to enlarge the electorate. Right.
2: So that's, that's what explains that. And um, Karen reminds us that another one was Chinese in Iowa. Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah.
8: Well, let me, let me give you an example of that. In Iowa, there's a group called Strong America Now,
3: right.
8: and it had 50,000 50, people who signed a pledge that they would vote for a candidate who was in favor of reforming government. Okay? You may have heard Newt talk about Lean Six Sigma, right, during the course of the debates, if you follow them closely. Anybody well,
2: here, here recall that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yes. Well, there were... We're, we're there aware of Lean Six Sigma.
8: Our Gingrich guerrilla team would be at someone's apartment. The more adolescent person on the team would say, first time he says Lean Six Sigma, drink. Okay? <laughs> well, the point of that was he was signaling to everybody who believed in modernizing government that he was going to be their champion. Well, 50,000 primary voters in Iowa, that's pretty good if you are if you can reach them because an electorate that's not that large, if you can get them to vote for him, that's a big payoff. And I'll tell you another little story on that because Lean Six Sigma... Turns out, if you go to LinkedIn, there is a group of 80,000 people who are in favor of Lean Six Sigma. And these are operators. In one day to the next, we organized a conference call to try to you know, organize these, these folks and get them to support our campaign. We had 800 people in one day. So Gingrich was constantly thinking about how do you uh, appeal to different parts of the alert. So, for example, people who suffer from Alzheimer's. Now, he wanted to give speeches and talk about an initiative on brain research. Well. Everybody who's got somebody suffering from Alzheimer's or any kind of other brain regenerative disease, well, they're going to care about that. And those are, that's going to be a, a Republican talking in non-traditionally Republican ways to try to grow an electorate.
2: Last question, uh, Vince, and that is, why not just uh, a campaign in which is, says, I'm going to be the conservative candidate in this campaign. They're that, that, that just sort of focused on that as a way to, defeat Romney.
8: Well, I think, I think Newt communicated that in many ways, that he was a conservative candidate. Um, I mean, here is a guy who, in, in the mid-1990s, uh, achieved enormous conservative accomplishments working with a Democratic president. Um, cut taxes, welfare reform, you know, 11 million new jobs. So, um, maybe he didn't emphasize that enough, but he had a, a record of conservative achievement. But he was also somebody who consistently, while he was Speaker, and in, and in enlarging the Republican majority, ultimately to victory in 94, was also reaching out to moderates, had them as a part of the coalition because he knew that you couldn't have a right-only majority. You had to have a center-right majority, and that included at times moderates. So he was he was always looking to grow the party, and that was part of the strategy. Okay, Dan, Thank
1: let, you. let me just throw in one 30-second question, and that is, when you sat down with Newt at the beginning, uh, I know he was friendly to everyone in the debates and, and put on a, a friendly front, but who was he most worried about?
8: Um, as I mentioned, he, in the course of the debate, he, he, he didn't really think too much about the other candidates. I mean, but it, but it's kind of an above-the-free... But
1: if he thought he was going to be the next nominee, he had to think in some form at some point well, about course, how he could do it. So he was most was worried the, about Romney's money, was Romney's there,
8: money attacking him. Was uh, there a and,
1: second alternative to Romney that he was most worried about? Well,
8: yeah, I think you, you had to be worried about Rick Perry. Rick yeah, Perry, yeah. strong governor in Texas, big uh, successful job creation record, Texas money. You know, he, he would be very, very formidable.
1: And he would talk about that,
2: about Perry? Not, not very much. Okay. But he was also friends with Perry. Yeah, he's very good friends yeah. with Perry. And um, people on Perry's team. You've done a wonderful <laughs> 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 you, you, You've done the perfect segue because the next campaign we want to talk about is the Perry campaign. Uh, Rob Johnson. Rob, we will not ask you to talk about the first Gingrich campaign. Um, you were there. Well, that's good,
9: because we failed at the left-handed Chinese <laughs> widget workers in Ames when I was there.
2: Uh, tell us about the Perry campaign.
9: Well, uh, <laughs> I was... The, 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 the global thing. The, the rationale. Uh, <laughs> he, he was born a poor child <laughs> on a farm. <laughs> uh, Paint Creek, Texas. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was...
2: I mean, here's the question, I think, okay. that that, that, that I, I would like to hear from you. That is, what did... I mean, given, given the timing of his decision to think about it and get into it, what did he think was missing in the race that prompted him to say it's worth a very late starting and, as it turned out, reasonably <coughs> ill-prepared candidacy?
9: We're supposed to talk about that part tomorrow.
2: Well, you'll talk about that, but, <laughs> but, but not at the beginning. The beginning is you have to cross that threshold. What was missing in the, in the race at that point, the field, that persuaded him he ought to get into it?
9: Well, when, when he called and said, I'm thinking about doing this, let's work on getting a plan together to make a decision, uh, we had three questions uh, Is there an opening? Uh, can we fill that opening? And. And. I'm just kidding. Uh, and um, and do, we, do we have the fire in the belly? And the answer to the first question is there is, an, is there an opening? I mean, you just look at the you looked at the public polls, and at that point, most public polls, and some of them, 37 to 40 percent were voting for people who weren't even in the race. So yes, there was an opening.
2: But what did you what did you what did you conclude that opening was? I mean, okay, that so opening was a was
9: a true fiscal conservative and a true social conservative with a proven record in both the country was losing jobs by the millions. Texas was creating jobs by the millions. Uh, Iowa was still looking in our opinion for a true social conservative and ultimately that's they picked a true social conservative. Um, And then we thought in uh, South Carolina with his military background was the beginning of the of a southern wall so um, you know we thought we could win Iowa uh, or do very well in Iowa. Uh, We thought we could uh, be a big enough distraction in New Hampshire because of our fiscal record um, to make Romney spend money. We didn't think we could win, but then we could go into South Carolina, and, and we thought we could win South Carolina. And, you know, we had one of the best announcements uh, of any of the campaigns out here. It was, I mean, we, we talk about the Iowa straw poll. What Iowa straw poll? We were in, Rick Perry announced in South Carolina, and it was a kaboom. And it was a big deal. And we shot up in two weeks to front-runner status, status, and it was the most exhilarating three hours
2: of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another question. You guys have been enormously successful in Texas, and the, and, the, and the team that started the campaign with Perry was, you know, Dave's here too, Dave Carney. That's, that's true. Um, very, very good in Texas. As you looked at a national race versus Texas, what were the things that were most daunting to you about trying to make that transition to go national?
9: Um, you know, building out a, a grassroots, a true grassroots network of, of support in the constricted timeframe. Uh, you know, Governor Perry had been dogged and absolute in his comments publicly that he was not going to run for president and privately behind closed doors. I mean, I, I walked into his office and told him about the Newt Gingrich offer, and I said, if there's a, a chance that you're going to run for, for run at all, I, I'm not going to do it. And he said, I don't know how you say no, Rob. I'm not running. Go. And so he really was not running for president. So part of the daunting part was just getting everything together in you know, weeks, a month, two months what a a very short amount of time in building out a network but the other exciting part of this was there there was no shortage of people who wanted to help and we put one thing that we learned from that you talked about Giuliani the Giuliani spend money in all states and pay these exorbitant salaries Um, we capped every salary the the ceiling was ten thousand dollars so professionals that wanted to work for Rick Perry ten thousand dollars is a lot of money I get it but we weren't going to pay above that, and so uh, and people were coming out of the woodwork to work for us. But it was, it was daunting to, to build that, um, that true grassroots network. That's it, what I would say let about. me just ask a follow-up sure. on the daunting but question. But we did raise $17.2 million in 48 days, I'm just saying.
1: <laughs> uh, I, I, Duly noted. <laughs> I understand the daunting on the grassroots level in building an organization, but how much discussion was there with the principal about how battle-tested he was? To, to come in that late and run a national campaign. I mean, you remember when George Bush ran, you know, from Texas, big state. He thought long and hard for a very long time about the the, the psychic toll and what it would really sure. take to be on the. Na- Did that come up very
9: much? Absolutely. In the we, we we had. The uh, grown-up discussions, the the real discussions with him, with him, with I would go to the mirror and be like, Rob, this is going to be hard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, yes, with Governor Perry, and. Uh, and, and I thought when you
2: would go to the mayor, then Carney would say, No, no, it's going to be fine, Rob. Don't worry yeah, about
9: it. It would turn into the evil Carney instead of my image. So, so uh, yeah, we had those discussions and, and we were prepared. But, you know, also in that short amount of time, we, we had to learn uh, and try to do a quick deep dive into a whole new set but, of issues, uh, federal issues rather than the state issues. But this is also, very, I think, very important in terms sure. of how the campaign unfolded. How blunt were
1: you about saying, you're not that good on stage necessarily you may think you weren't but no how blunt were you about what he had to overcome or did well we didn't say not, that because we thought he was good on stage and so the campaign didn't necessarily recognize
9: no but we these. said can you say the f-word at harvard we said this is going to be f hard i mean this is going to be tough we were blunt we were we were very direct and he listened and he asked real questions this wasn't just a flip a coin i yeah. mean he it, he wasn't gonna run wasn't gonna run saw an opening felt like his country was calling him and he felt a true calling to go do this for his country this wasn't about Rick Perry this wasn't about this was about our country and, and he did it with his feeling with his being and it just didn't work sometimes
2: it doesn't. Rob last question for you and that is the role Thank of, you. of Anita Pe- <laughs> Anita Perry how important was her enthusiasm for him to run what made her so enthusiastic, and what role did she play in that formative stage?
9: Um, she, she, was, uh, she played a huge role, a very critical, important role. She also felt uh, that they were being called to do this and that they were doing this for their country. Um, and, look, this is not a, this is not a typical marriage. These, uh, Rick and Anita Perry are best friends. Um, they, don't, they don't do things without doing it together. And uh, she, she wanted him to run. She believed that he was the answer uh, to the problems that our country was facing, and she definitely, uh, definitely uh, talked very strongly to him about his need to do this. And in her words, you need to—you have one of the—you say you have the greatest job in the world. You need to step outside of your comfort zone and go do this for your country and for your children and for your future uh, grandchildren. Good.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime, Rob. And so now we will turn to the campaign that was eclipsed by Governor Perry. Uh, For anybody who was in Waterloo, Iowa, the night after the straw poll, we all remember that great scene, and it will probably be relived tomorrow. But uh, we turn now to Keith Nahigian uh, for the Bachman campaign.
10: Thank you. Um, yeah, Waterloo. was a blast. Um, basically, our campaign, one thing that was different on this cycle than the other seven races I've worked on on the presidential uh, level has been the fact that you saw the first couple of uh, examples that there was organization, and the, the Romney campaign was going for years. Uh, the palente campaign was going for years. There was normally exploratory committees. You work everything out. Uh, the Bachman campaign was different. Um, I had a meeting with her on May 15th, and she had nothing. And we had a kickoff of a campaign uh, three weeks later. So it's – you can imagine some of you trying to start a newspaper, start a television station in uh, three weeks. It's a little interesting. But basically, um, as you know, uh, I started the same day Ed did. Ed was our chairman of our campaign. Our – looking at Michelle Bachman kind of started out of 2010 – with the whole Tea Party movement and the really the, the creation of the Obamacare Affordable Choice Act. And it was, that was the reason she got into the race, um, was she thought that was kind of going over the line. Her strengths, obviously, are she's a pretty good communicator, good on television, good at making news. Um, her coalition that we thought we'd want to put together is uh, Christian conservatives, Tea Party, and then her, her national security background, uh, being able to really work on foreign affairs, she just loved that particular area. Uh, she matched up really well with South Carolina. She matched up medium with New Hampshire because it had all those pieces. Iowa was a little bit of a stretch because um, it, it's not as strong in some of those areas, not as strong as Tea Party, not as strong as national security. Um, we started a campaign. We wanted to make some news right out of the gate. So we announced on Sam's uh, one of his many awesome debates um, that she was going to sign papers. Um, and that made some news. Uh, we kind of drew from a lot of different things that we've done in the past, whether it's the old McCain years um, when we tried to have access to the media, be responsible to the media, and, and make as much earned media as we possibly could. We had no major donors, and we did no fundraisers the entire campaign. Um, we just had a lot of little donors that were giving us all the time. Why,
2: why did you do no fundraisers? Because you didn't think you could raise there were,
10: really weren't any, because she came in so late, yeah. um, every major donor was basically taken or quartered from. Ex-
2: except what, the, the ones that Rick Perry later got.
10: Rick Perry, but he had them kind of frozen out. They were kind of waiting for him, and we were working on that, so they weren't going but to But she's do not it.
2: a big donor kind of candidate, right? She's not
10: a big donor kind of candidate, right. but we didn't have a fundraiser. It's kind of amazing. It's kind of When I ran, when I was on Steve Forbes' campaign, we didn't have a fundraiser either. It's great. <laughs> 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 yeah, it frees up your time. <laughs> Yeah. Um so anyway, we, we uh, so we kicked off, and uh, we, we wanted to focus on a couple of different things. We wanted to get out of Iowa because we thought if we got out of Iowa, our organization, New Hampshire and South Carolina were very strong, and we 'd be able to run. Uh, when we run the primary with McCain in 2000. But when
2: you say you wanted to get out of Iowa, you wanted to get out of Iowa, I assume you're talking about the caucuses. You wanted to get out of Iowa in what kind of shape? I mean, what was your sense of what the minimum necessary in Iowa had well, to be at that point? Just to compare it to the
10: political spectrum, uh, we wanted to be kind of the anti, in terms of what well, you just heard, the Huntsman strategy. We wanted to be the opposite. We wanted to be, uh, Michelle Bachman is unlike a lot of these other people. Normally you get a candidate and it's like, oh, they flipped on this issue. They were kind of wobbly on this issue all these different things all the way along the, the road, we have to kind of de-emphasize all those different areas. Well, she was really the first completely pure candidate I'd ever worked for that hadn't had a move on anything. She hasn't moved on anything her entire career because she doesn't care. She, doesn't, she really doesn't want to be a politician. She just believes what she believes,
2: that's it. But let me ask you, in a sense, the, the flip of what I asked Matt. Yeah. Uh, was there ever a point where you said she's too conservative? No. I mean, it's nice to be the conservative candidate, but she's too conservative. No, our,
10: our our strategy was you have Romney over here. He is going to get what he's going to get. And when you hold her against some of these other people running, our thought was get in, and we needed to shrink the Sam stage. We needed to get rid of people as quickly as possible. So we kind of used the debates, and Brett did a good job with this, of targeting each debate. So we went and did Polente, then we went down and Herman Cain, then we went after Um, you know, crony capitalism with Perry. We were just going right down the line. Then we hit Newt Gingrich. In the last 10 days, we really hit Ron Paul a lot in Iowa. We wanted to just get Ron Paul out. And, you know, other things got to mind, but that's what we were trying to do. We were just trying to be the the number two, the conservative alternative to Mitt Romney. All
2: right. Rick, you got any? Okay. Thank you. Um, Buddy Romer complained throughout the election that nobody gave him enough time to make his piece or to say his piece. And so tonight, uh, Carlos Sierra will do that for the campaign. See if that's. You get a mic that actually works.
11: <laughs> I don't know how I got stuck at the students' table, but <laughs> 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 you know, uh, our strategy early on. And uh, buddy called me. I still remember the day he called me and asked me to head up the campaign. I was working. I worked for Senator McCain for about ten years, and he's like, Carlos, you know, I, I, I'm sick of what's going on with this administration, and I just read the budget. I'm fed up with it. You know, we need to change America. I'm like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> Who are we going to support? He's like, no, I want to run. <laughs> and then after that, he's like, I want you to head up my campaign.
2: And then what did you say? I, I was speechless, like right now. <laughs> I, was,
11: I was like, all right. And I was like, well, give me a couple days to think about it. You know, I, I had a couple kids, a mortgage. I had a cushy job with McCain. So, you know, I, give me a couple days, buddy. Before we hung up, he's like, by the way, Carlos, I want to have a $100 cap on donations. <laughs> so I, was, I didn't have a chance to, to say anything. So, anyway, a couple days later, I thought about it, talked to McCain about it. He told me to do it. Rest is history. I ended up being his campaign manager. And we, you know, I know a lot of people in the media thought that we were running just to prove a point, but we weren't. You know, our, our big issue was campaign finance reform, and he really wanted to be the reform candidate. You know, I guess you compare it to Ross Perot in 92. But, um, you know, our big issue was campaign finance reform. We thought there was a lot of corruption going on. We thought money in politics was out of hand. And uh, that's what we were running on, the money. Um, So we put a plan together. And with the $100 limit, you know, obviously, it kind of changes things a little bit. But we did put a good team together. You know, our, our, our lawyer was Trevor Potter. You guys know who Trevor Potter is. Uh, Mark McKinnon, who's in the room, was a good friend of Buddy's. You know, I know he advised him early on. Um, uh, Becky Donatelli, before joining the Bachman campaign, did all our online campaign. Um, Mike Dennehy, who won New Hampshire for McCain in 2000 and 2008, was our advisor in New Hampshire. So I know a lot of people in the media thought we were running just to prove a point. But when you put that kind of team together, we were running to win. And unfortunately... I feel, and Buddy feels, that the people in the media, you know, just thought when you run with a $100 limit, that you're not being serious. You're just running to prove a point. And so, you know, the, the five things we put together well, was... Also, let,
2: me, let, me, let, me, let me interrupt for a second on that. I mean, Jerry Brown did that same sort of thing in 1992 and had a lot more success than, than Governor Romer did. Um, you know, it's not as though Governor Romer was somebody who had never held office. He had. Right. He, uh, you know, Congress and the governorship. Um, What's the difference?
11: The difference is you, Dan, to be honest. I mean, you were one of the guys we emailed and, and asked why didn't Buddy get invited to the Washington Post debate. Right. You know, and, and we never got an answer from you. I mean, um, I'll be honest, like, it, it was the media. I mean, yeah. you guys just never no, but took
2: – I mean, d- d- just uh, as a side, I mean, there were, there were a set of criteria for that debate, and he didn't meet them.
11: So being a governor, being a four-term congressman, being a small business owner apparently doesn't qualify, but a pizza guy qualifies. Like, I, I guess I'm missing something. I don't know what happened to our country, you know? But that's that's where we're going in our Wait, national politics can right Can we now.
1: get a response from the pizza guy? <laughs> no, He's, He's out smoking. smoking. He's smoking. Sorry. It was his, his moment, so. You
11: know, So so. Just to carry on, so we had, we had a few things. Buddy wanted to be the reform candidate. We, we knew, but with the $100 limit, no super PAC, no PAC money, um, no lobbyist money, that we had to have an awesome social media campaign. We had to focus on one state, which was New Hampshire. So me and him and the team moved to New Hampshire. We were there for seven to eight months. Literally went to every single county, city, town, met with everybody. We were polling ahead of Rick Perry for two months. Um, after, what, 17.2 million in 29 days, you said? Um, Seven, oh, okay. (laughs) You know, so, you know, New Hampshire was a big strategy of ours, but our strategy was social media, earned media, public finance, which we accomplished. Um, Social media, I still think we ran the best social media campaign. I think he tweeted every single person in this room. Again, the one thing that we did, never, we did not accomplish was getting invited to any of the debates. And I think most of these people in the room know that Buddy is an awesome debater. I mean, he, two Harvard degrees, governor, four-term congressman, small business owner, he would have mopped the floor with any of these candidates here. You guys know that. And he was never given a chance, unfortunately. So our strategy all along was the debates. And unfortunately, we never got that, so. Um,
2: Given that you saw the, you know, the resistance to having him in the debates, was there an alternative strategy?
11: There was an alternative strategy, and that was the third party, the, you know, the Americans-elect, and so, we'll talk a little about, about that tomorrow, but our strategy after when we knew that the media was not gonna let him participate was, all right, what's plan B? So we met, we talked with a lot of people, and we decided you know let's let's explore this Americans elect option and we did that, and so we're speaking candidates off the record. He came into my office one day in New Hampshire, and we literally wrote it on a on a board in my in my office, and it was the reform Party, the Whig party, Americans elect. Um, you know we decided, you know why not build a coalition of the Whig party, the reform party? Americans elect, bring them all together, and try to you know, really be, have an impact in this, this election. And that's what we did. That was, that was ultimately what we did after we knew we were not gonna get into the debates. Good.
2: Okay, thank you. Uh, Rick Santorum started also as something of a dark horse. Um, John Braybender will tell us the origins of the candidacy and uh, what the strategy was.
3: I think you almost have to look at our campaign as far as strategy in phases, because we weren't there. We were there, announced candidate, but we weren't given credibility at the front end. And then later on, uh, we certainly were. And you know, I mean, the whole thing started. Rick Santorum lost his reelection. I think it was 16 points, 18. Who's counting? (laughs) And uh, obviously, when you lose a reelection by 18 points, you sit around, say, "What I do next?" and what popped into our mind was we run for president. <laughs> it seems perfectly logical. And, and the truth of the matter is, before Rick did get in the race, the final decision was his family. I, I, those who know Rick know how he cares about his family. And we did have a meeting at his house with his children. It's a very densely populated household, so it was a big meeting. And, and I remember this is true. His kids said, we want you to run. It's important for our generation to run, but we asked two things do not embarrass us, and don't be the first one out. And so, Phil, where you may be disappointed about the Plenty campaign, forever you can hold your head high knowing that you helped the father keep a commitment to his kids. <laughs> um, in, in, in truth, I think the first thing I, I should do is, is maybe even remind people the success that Rick Santorum did have. He was involved in uh, uh, 30 different primaries. Out of those 30 primaries, he won 11
2: of them and tied two others in delegates. But, John, don't, don't leap too far ahead because we're going to get into some of that tomorrow. All right. Um, then
3: I won't even mention that he won more counties <laughs> than the other Republican <laughs> candidates combined. But our goal, quite frankly, before Iowa, was not to get thrown off the island for all practical purposes. And what did
2: that mean? And that meant, first that of all,
3: we had v- whatever money, we had very small staff, and we were not going to have a lot of expenditures. Because we honestly felt that, I'll be honest, the Herman Cain campaign, we felt one of our best days was when he won the Florida Straw Poll. Because we felt he would be seen now as a credible candidate and go through credi- you know, the type of credibility check that you need to have. Rick Santorum, we realized, had gone through tough races, rose to the third highest spot in the U.S. Senate, 12 years in the Senate, uh, four years in the House. So we, we knew we could survive as long as we could survive financially. And our goal was... Get through the top tier in Iowa. If we could be in the top four in Iowa, we could go. And we really felt a big emphasis was going to be on debates, and it was a much bigger challenge than we realized because there was 12 candidates, and oftentimes because of the poll numbers, we were on the end. In fact, it, it was really concerning the very first debate that 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 Perry was in. We thought we must have really bad name ID because Santorum said something, and Perry decided he was going to respond. And said I. I want to respond to that fella at the end. I kid you not, that's what he said. And, uh, sub- subsequent debates, we realized, it said nothing to do with name ID. But, um,
2: um, but we did as, need to get as Rick through Iowa. Said, we are encouraging settling scores, and we appreciate that you're, <laughs> the, the, you're in the, the spirit the, of the evening. We did feel that we could own
3: a big part of the social conservative sort of platform by saying we not only have been a consistent vote, here' are some of the things we did, and he could go into a lot of room, and those who have seen Rick Santorum give a speech on on some of these issues, you know it matters in places like Iowa. He spent a lot of time in Iowa, and that certainly uh, uh, was a goal. We also thought that his early years as a reformer would help him at least get his fair share of tea party. so we ultimately, as you know, eventually not on Iowa caucus night, but eventually when we get to South Carolina found out Rick Santorum was the winner. The two, the next phase was really Iowa through Nevada. We knew we were not going to be particularly strong, but we wanted to keep our name ID, which actually our favorable rating was higher than any other candidate, very strong. We wanted to be the adult in the room at the debates. Right.
5: Can,
2: can we get let, me, let, me, let me go yep. back um, Yeah. because, again, I, I don't want to get ahead of the, the morning panel. Um, everybody else has basically said when they scoped this race out, Mitt Romney was the person that they felt they had to beat. If you're saying you hope to get fourth in Iowa, who were the other? I mean, who were the other candidates that you were worried about? Who did you feel that you also had well, to get around?
3: Pro- the first thing we were happy is when Mike Pence decided not to run. That was very helpful. We felt to us. Number two was because Perry. He, he would have he would we have thought he would have space. appealed to the exact same audience, would have had the same credibility, and would have split a lot of votes. And hadn't lost a recent election. Exactly. So right. we, we were worried, frankly, about Mike Pence. Perry worried us a lot because he had money. And we knew a lot of this was going to be about timing. Who could ride the wave last? And we, we honestly probably thought that that was going to be harder for Kane to do to some degree. We thought it was going to be harder to Gingrich to do in Iowa, especially because he was already being beat up. We thought Perry would have the money and, and the backing. And frankly, we were, we were uh, fighting for some of the same evangelicals. We were also finding. Did you that, ever,
2: at, at, at any point, uh, were you ever concerned about Michelle Bachman?
3: Yeah, but not as much because we just felt over time in debates that, that we could show a distinction. Um, what we were finding, however, was we were running into an electability problem. We were finding people that wanted to support us, but just felt we weren't going to be the nominee. At some point, that changed, particularly when we won three states in one night Minnesota, Colorado, and Missouri. And um, uh, we raised 1.5 million in the next 24 hours. We would have raised more, other than we had basically so much volume coming in, it couldn't, it couldn't handle it. But that let us move into now claiming we were the alternative to Mitt Romney that everybody was talking about. Okay. And and that really it, it was a big part of the, the race from that point on. Did you have a- Yeah, I just want
1: to get back to the threshold question decision of of uh, Rick Santorum to run to run. And I'll raise what you raised, which is the whole question that he, he lost, you know, in a big way. He lost uh, his Senate seat. Now, were you in the, I, I can't remember, were you in the room when, with his family, the crowded yeah. room? Okay. Yeah, yeah. In that discussion where they had this big fundamental moment of deciding to run for president, I'm trying to picture the scene with all the kids and everything. Did he talk about, did anyone talk about, how do you run for president of the united states when your own you know constituents turned you out
3: now and the, the reason for that is you know we knew the race that we lost well it was 2006 pennsylvania was the worst state in the nation however rick santorum did get 93 percent of the republican vote in exit polls in pennsylvania so it was not a republican problem the other thing too is people said we lost because he was too conservative Which is a heck of a primary Republican primary message, you know. So we were able to spin that. That look, everybody was telling us to become a moderate to win in Pennsylvania re-election. He refused to do that and lost. So he's a trusted conservative. And and so, and Rick's not the type of person. I mean, look, every time he ever ran, it was against long odds. And so that that wasn't it. It was it was actually interesting because I mean, you know, their kids were very engaged. In fact, I remember the daughter Sarah Maria was there. Who was in seventh grade, I think, at the time, and she had this small file. And I said, are you already keeping track of all the articles about your dad running for president? That's why it was a small file at the time. And she said, no, this is opposition research. And uh, I thought, that's great. They're engaged. and uh, Because they do stuff as a family. They spent two and a half weeks right before the Iowa uh, straw poll together, including their special needs child, Bella, who was out there in Iowa with them.
1: So, so basically it just wasn't a worry, it didn't come up at all in the early planning of how do, how, how do we overcome this perception issue? I mean, you can make all these yeah. explanations, we, but, but still it's pretty striking when you lose your own state.
3: It, it is, but I will tell you that those weren't the questions we were being asked okay. when we were out there. People weren't saying, geez, I love everything you stand for, but you lost your last right. race. Uh, that, that really didn't become a factor, I don't believe, in the race. Okay.
2: Thank you. Uh we are down to uh, the last two campaigns. Um, and we will start with <laughs> we're almost done. Uh, we'll start with Matt Rhodes from the Romney campaign. You. <clears throat> Matt, you brought a constituency with you.
12: I guess so. Thank you. Uh first off, I just want to Congratulate the Obama campaign. Haven't had a chance to do so publicly, but you guys ran a great campaign, and, and uh, we have a lot of respect for your team. I also wanted to tip uh, my hat to all the, the Republican candidates and everybody that worked on those campaigns. You guys were formidable opponents. Uh, many of you helped out the Romney campaign in many ways uh, after your candidates got out, and we thank you for everything that you did. Um, first off, on the primary side of things, We had three things that we were trying to achieve in the primary. The first was we wanted to run a lean campaign because we knew that the calendar, the way it was with allocated delegates as well, it was gonna be a long process. And we never expected to win this early, never. You know, I know some people have talked tonight about Mitt Romney was in their way and it was Mitt Romney. But we knew it was gonna be a long fight, part because we knew the calendar, in part because we had run before. And uh, one of the most important things that we had to do was as a campaign, and obviously as a candidate, was just stay relaxed and calm. And when you're you know, third in the national polls, you gotta continue to execute on your plan. And the second big part of the plan in the primary was to focus the campaign on the President's record on jobs and the economy. And everything we did, everything we said, we tried to talk about jobs in the economy, to the point where people like Phil Rucker and Ashley Parker were probably getting sick to their stomachs about hearing about it, but that was our goal. And then the third step in our primary strategy, it seems pretty simple, but we didn't want to chase shiny objects, things like straw poles, topics we didn't want to talk about, and it was always, always our goal just to keep it in Mitt's wheelhouse. And Mitt's wheelhouse was jobs in the economy, and occasionally talk about cuts in spending. So those were our three simple steps, our three simple plans, our our goals to win the nomination. And we tried to stick to that throughout the primary process. Then we got to the general. In our first goal, we had just spent $87 million in a primary. The long slog is what we called it internally in the campaign. And we realized we had to quickly build out our finance team, um, build out our digital team, build out our political team so that we could compete with an incumbent president who had been working towards this general election race for a long, long time. And so we quickly tried to do that. And then we made the decision to immediately lay out what Mitt Romney would do as president. That's why we did day one, job one ads, focused on how he would turn around the economy, cut spending, and that was our goal coming out of the gate. We also, and this is always a big challenge and and it's, it's difficult to do, but we wanted this campaign to be about big issues and big ideas. And sometimes we failed at that, but our goal was always to keep a positive information flow, give speeches on important topics that we thought voters cared about, this played into... The governor's decision to pick Congressman Ryan as his running mate allowed us to talk about big issues. Sometimes people thought we were crazy uh, to want to talk about spending and entitlement reform. But that was the idea there. And then the fourth strategy, the fourth goal here was the debates. And Governor Romney, more so than anybody else on the team, he knew how important the debates were going to be. And he insisted, he insisted that we put more and more uh, debate prep time on the calendar. He insisted that when we came to him in the early part of the summer with his first debate briefing books, that it wasn't enough. He wanted more. Uh, He didn't care if people in the media were critical at times of like, where's Governor Romney? Why isn't he campaigning four times a day? Why is he just spending so much time in debate prep? He knew how important it was. Uh, In the end, I think he was was very right. Um, You know, finally. You know, we, in the end, we didn't win. Uh, we came up short, but, you know, I'm very proud of the, the team we built, and I'm very proud of the, the man I worked for, um, and that was it.
2: Matt, let me ask you this. Go back to the early stage, um, and we talked about this briefly uh, during the reception. To what extent did the the sort of change in the party as the Tea Party became a real force um, affect your analysis of what the primary campaign might be like, what it would take to win it? Did it it make it look more daunting? Did it uh, it affect your thinking in any way about this will be a harder race because of of where the party is and where Governor Romney has been on some things?
12: Well, like I said, we always knew it belonged for a variety of reasons, and we always knew there would be an anti-Mitt candidate, and whether they w- were blessed by the Tea Party or not, we knew that that was going to happen. I think where your question is kind of going, and it might be your next question, is about Massachusetts health care and how that was going to impact Governor Romney in the primary. And I can tell you, um, when I was at his PAC, when I wasn't busy helping get Republican candidates elected across the country, Occasionally, people would call me about the presidency and whether Mitt should run, and if he was going to run, he had to apologize for Massachusetts health care. He had to. And I knew, because I know Governor Romney and how he feels, he never was going to do that. It never crossed his mind. And so an important hurdle for Governor Romney, and we knew this from the very beginning in the very, very early stages, to your point, was that first debate when he finally went up there in the, in the Republican primary, and we knew he had to, to nail the health care answer. And I think that he did, and it came up over and over in debates, and he locked his answer down more and more during those debates. Um, and so I think that that was an important factor.
2: A lot of you have talked uh, through the course of the campaign that in a sense he's an unlikely nominee for the Republican Party of 2012, um, Massachusetts in a party that's southern-based. Uh, a Mormon in a party where there's evangelical Christians who are at the core and obviously um, more moderate in some of his positions than some people in the party. How much did you talk about that at the beginning? How much did you think that was a potential problem? What did you do to deal with that?
12: Well, I think that that goes back to the second step that we had in our plan to win the primary, which was either we made the race about jobs and the economy or we didn't. Either we took the nomination or we didn't. We knew it was going to be a long fight. We knew there was going to be a lot of candidates that would have their moments. But if we talked about jobs in the economy as much as possible and made that the centerpiece of the entire campaign and what people were talking about, then Mitt Romney had a shot at winning the nomination.
1: Yeah, just a couple questions on the, I mean, Romney was running longer than any of the other candidates, uh, any Republican candidates. And you look at the polls two, three years ago, and it's Palin, Romney. How much did, were you all really concerned about Palin? And did he talk about her as a threat?
12: Look, we there were candidates, there were constantly candidates that were in the lead during the Republican primary process. And you just have to be patient. It didn't matter who it was. Uh, there certainly were times when Governor Palin was at the top of the list. Um, but we just knew we had to stick to the plan we had.
1: Right. And but you, we didn't I, I you, know that but I want to know what, what when you when Romney would talk about the campaign and the all these people coming at him, how focused, how much did he talk about Palin versus the others? I mean, he must have talked about the other candidates cuz that's what the primary is, you know. Look, a lot of
12: these candidates were forwardable. I can tell you for example, Governor Romney never was looking forward to debate Speaker Gingrich. Um, and I think for for the right reasons, the Speaker was very good in these debates. Um, and
1: was it also their personal animus attentions there?
12: Or? Speaker Gingrich and Governor Romney really didn't even know each other. Actually, we made uh, an effort early on at the very beginning of the primary to introduce them and let them spend some time. And they actually had a very, very, very nice meeting. Um, and, you know, they've grown to respect each other quite a bit. But there was no one particular mm-hmm. candidate that we just, you know, sat there, or the Gov sat there pulling his right. hair out. We just knew. We had to be relaxed and but patient.
1: In, and in terms of campaign skills, um, Gingrich was the one who kind of was daunting form of all of them. Well, many of them were.
12: I just used Speaker Gingrich as an example because of his debating skills.
2: And what. Um, as you look back on that early period, and I'm sure everybody who was involved in any of the campaigns looks back and says, "We we made certain assumptions at the beginning that just turned out to be wrong." If you look back on on that, and you obviously were you know successful through the primaries, what were those assumptions, or were there any that, as you look back on, you thought we were just wrong about that, and we had to adjust, or? Um, <coughs> that this didn't unfold in the way you anticipated?
12: In the primary, we knew we weren't going to win early for sure. Um, We knew it would drag out. But that said, I don't think any of us realized that week in, week out, it was do or die for Mitt Romney and that we had to have the resources to compete week after week to be up in TV usually for two straight weeks going into states, whether it was Illinois was a must win, Wisconsin was a must win, Ohio was a must-win. You know, they were all must-wins. And as much as we knew that this would be a long, dragged-out process, I don't think anybody on the team actually knew that, you know, everything would be, you know, reliant on the main caucus and competing with Trig V and Ron Paul up in Maine. You know, there were, there were adjustments that had to be made. We were wise to try to spend as little as possible in the beginning, but that didn't mean we didn't have to make more adjustments throughout the long slog because of that.
1: Related to that, Matt, when did you all anticipate you'd have it locked up, like, roughly? How, or, how much earlier did you think?
12: I, I actually don't remember. It's like so long ago. <laughs> I could lie to you.
2: <laughs> all right. Uh, there will be much more to tell of the Romney campaign tomorrow. Um, finally, uh, President Obama's campaign. Jeremy Bird, the floor is yours, sir. Whoa, whoa.
13: Hey, uh, so thank you all uh, for uh, letting us be here today and for, uh, for tonight. It's actually good to be back. I, I went to Divinity School here about 10 years ago, and I started uh, in politics in part because of this building and, and the Kennedy School and, and uh, Professor Gans over there who got me involved. And uh, working with kids here in Boston, trying to get more money uh, in their schools. So it's good. It's good to be back, and, and to the Romney folks, and to all the Republican candidates and uh, your campaigns here. Uh, you guys ran great races, um, and it's a pleasure to uh, to be up here following you, Matt. And I'm sure there're going to be uh, good conversations tomorrow. A lot of our uh, my colleagues on the Obama campaign are at a fundraiser with Axe for some of the work that he does uh, outside of politics. Um, so uh, I get the ple- the pleasure of talking a little bit about uh, the campaign here. Uh, you know. You'll, we'll talk a lot more tomorrow about, um, you know, what happened in the general election, but uh, Dan has asked us to stay focused on what our strategy was. And I remember um, uh, meeting with Jim uh, and Jen O'Malley-Dillon. It was in December uh, of, of 2010, and if you know, remember back to that time, um, we, we had not had a good November of 2010. Um, and we were uh, starting, you know, to put the, the pieces in place uh, for the campaign, and they asked me to come on to be the field director. And when we were sitting there talking in, in D.C. about the strategy, one of the, the biggest pieces was that we could not let uh, the Republican primary go on with us being a, a sort of backseat and just let 2011 be about the Republican primary uh, and Republican candidates going across Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, and, and, and all across the country talking about the president's record without fighting back. Uh, and without being a part of that conversation. At the same time, we knew that this was going to be a close race, um, and that if we could have an electorate that looked anything like 2008 and not like 2010, um, that we could win. But in order to do that, we had to not only be a part of the the media debate, be a part of defining uh, the candidates, uh, and being a part of that discussion in the media, we also had to be building the grassroots uh, campaign on the ground. And we believe that if we started in two thousand and eleven and we had a lot of uh, you know foundation already built through two thousand and eight two thousand and nine two thousand and ten, that we could actually build a campaign where we treated every battleground state like a governor 's race that we could actually go into each one of these states in Ohio and Florida and elsewhere and in you know states as massive as Florida, we could actually build a neighborhood team based program where we had volunteers who actually covered their neighborhoods that could be ready when early votes started in two thousand and twelve so we believe. Most importantly, that we had to start early, uh, and that we could not allow 2011 to go by without starting to build that foundation. And then we believed in, in 2000, you know, that we had to sort of define we, – we, we thought all along that, that Mitt Romney would be uh, the nominee. There was obviously uh, periods of time where that was in question, but we believed all along that we would be uh, running against the Romney campaign, uh, and that at times when he wasn't being hit uh, in the primary from his opponents when other folks – and you've already talked about it tonight – were trying to position themselves to be the alternative, that we had to be a part of that conversation. Um, and then in 2012, as we were building up, you know, we, we thought we have to build this grassroots campaign that has to do four things. Uh, we have to expand the electorate because there, the electorate cannot look like 2010. There are people who voted for us in 2008 that did not vote for us in 2010. Those were gonna be a part of our persuasion universe but we also believed that there were new voters out there, that there were people out there that volunteered for us when they were in high school that couldn't vote, that we needed to get on the rolls, and we needed to expand the electorate. So that organization would be focused on everything that we did, whether you're a research in the research department, in the field department, doing paid media, that you'd be focused at some point on registration, persuasion, and then ultimately turnout and running uh, an early vote and turnout program. And then the fourth piece of that was building an organization, uh, and that looked like the neighborhood team program that I talked about in all of our states but it also looked like having the best research program, having the best paid media team, having the best analytics team so that we could look at uh, the electorate and figure out how do we build a coalition uh, that can look like um, uh, the electorate looked like in 2008. It also meant building a fundraising team that that could compete. We knew that Mitt Romney's campaign would be very formidable in terms of fundraising and we knew with Citizens United and and the Super PAC money that we were going to be at a disadvantage um, and that we had to build multiple revenue streams. Uh, Teddy is in the room, I think, um, uh, somewhere. Uh, Teddy, who ran our digital program, uh, uh, unbelievable program. We knew that early on in 2011, we weren't going to have the kind of small-dollar online fundraising that we would have in October of 2012, but we had to build the infrastructure, hire the right staff, test what did work in 2011 that we could then implement uh, you know, at, at a sort of higher level in 2012. Uh, we knew that we had to have the big, the big dollar uh, fundraising come, coming in, and Rufus built out his team. Um, and then we knew with with, uh, with Jim here, uh, Margolis, and the, and the paid media team uh, that we needed to make sure that the election in the general was not simply a referendum on the president, that it was a choice. And we knew we needed to define our opponent and make that a choice for voters that we were trying to persuade early on. At the same time, we were trying to mobilize and excite the folks that uh, were our coalition in 2008. So we had to build a very, very good campaign because we knew it was going to be close. Um, we, had to, we had to take, care, uh, take advantage of 2011 uh, and use that time to build up something that's really hard to do in a presidential campaign. And having uh, worked the 2008 uh, campaign for Obama, we knew what it was like to come out of a brutal primary and try to build a massive business essentially, a massive a grassroots organization across the country in such a short amount of time, and we, we didn't want to uh, let that happen. We wanted to take advantage of what our, uh, our advantage was, um, was the grassroots that we could mobilize, the funding that we could get in from the, from the grassroots, and also just the time that we had that we knew the Republican opponent
2: would not have. Jeremy, one question, and that is, I mean, there were, there were certain things that you guys could control, and you've gone through some of those. The biggest problem that you couldn't control was the economy. Um, how did that affect the thinking as you started the campaign? What were you going to do about it or not do about it or hope to do about it? Uh, And how much did that hang over everything else you were doing?
13: Yeah, we never talked about it. (laughs) (laughs) We thought we'd make this about the economy and the debates. That was this, no. Uh, (laughs) Kidding. We, obviously this was, you you know, and all of us know this as campaigners, there are, you know, we like to talk about all the great things that we can do as campaigners, but there are some things that you cannot control. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't work in the White House. I, I didn't have control over, you know, what was happening there. And so, look, every every Friday, you know, first Friday of the month was a big day. We had a 9 a.m. meeting every, mm-hmm. every you know, day. And the Friday, the first one of the month was a big, was a big day for us um, to go in there and figure out, you know, what, what the jobs numbers were going to be and where we were with the unemployment numbers. Um, and we knew that we couldn't have a very complicated you know conversation about where we came in and make this about looking backwards and say, "Well, but when we came in in January of two thousand and nine, this is where things were you know and it 's gotten better that 's that's not a great argument for any of uh, jim 's ads or for the conversations that we were trying to have with people at the door, so we needed to, to make it about forward looking um, and uh, you know obviously there was a lot of things the economy you know what was happening uh, abroad, lots of things that we couldn 't control and and I, I think Mac talked about this when, when he you know just presented which and I think this comes from the president, we had a great campaign leadership that was not about riding the highs and then getting down on the lows. You know, we knew that we were gonna be up and we were gonna be down, and every time there was a good polling week, you know, Jim would come in, uh, Messina would come into the office and say, do not get excited about those numbers. They do not mean anything, especially national numbers. This is not a national race. This is about getting 270 electoral votes in the battleground states, focus on that. And when the polls were bad, We we always had sort of got people uh, ready for that. So we tried to stay really focused and and, and control those things that we could and not, you know, not worry about the things that we couldn't control and just sort of manage them when we got there.
2: In in the, uh, at the early stage of the campaign, there was a lot of stuff written by all of us about how strong or weak the coalition from 08 was and the different pieces of it. As you looked at that coalition. Which were the groups that you were most worried about? Which were the groups where you had the most confidence that, that uh, things were okay? Uh,
13: the, the the most worrisome group was young people, uh, and many of you wrote about that at nauseum. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> looking, we saw it in our polling, you know, early on. And, and part of this is about you know how much are young people paying attention in you know mid two thousand and eleven when we did really start the campaign. But we always knew that that was the biggest thing that we had to address, um, and we did that on the ground. You know, so I was in Ohio in two thousand and eight. And we had one or two organizers on OSU's campus. This time we had five to 10. Uh, and we were ramping up the whole way. We knew we had to organize meticulously, doggedly, and focused on these college campuses. We had to get something on the, uh, up early. We had to make sure that people were engaged. And you know, it was like um, the first time in 2008, a lot of this was with the, with, the, with the wind at our back. And this time we knew we had to just grind it out. Uh, and with young people, we had to make sure that we were you know, talking about what mattered. We were organizing. We were you know, using all of the digital assets that we had. And we had one of the greatest digital programs. These guys raised more money online than we did in 2008. They were mobilizing people in ways that no one thought we could in 2012. But that was the one uh, segment demographic that we were the most worried about. Uh, we knew from all of our analytics that um, we had uh, strong support. The support was at the same level it was with African Americans. And we felt very good about where the turnout was going to be there. It was going to take work, um, but we knew we could get it there. Um, and, you know, I think we were aided in some ways in, in the primary where, where, where the conversation went with Hispanic voters. Uh, we thought we could get some of the turnout numbers just based on how the demographics had changed at a pretty high level. But in terms of the percentage that we would get, um, I think we, even, we exceeded our own expectations in Colorado and Nevada and some other places. But youth was the, the, the most troublesome one early on.
2: And I'll, and I'll uh, end with the last question that I asked, Matt, and that is um, as you look back, what were, the, what were the misconceptions or uh, sort of strategic assumptions that you made at the time that turned out not to be the case?
13: Hmm.
2: Other than that you won.
13: Yeah. No, you know, it's always easier uh, to, to have that conversation when you win. Um, I mean, I think that the personally, and I, I, we had debate about this, uh, you know, in the office, but I actually think that we believe that the Republican primary would be over earlier than it was. Hmm. Um, and that we would be facing a long, a longer general election. Um, and it didn't really change so much about how we would prepare, um, but we really did believe that it was going to be over uh, sooner than it, than it was, and I think that would have been uh, – And what's the you know, reason you made that assumption? Uh, we just we – just looking, looking at how, you know, who got in the race early on and how things were going, uh, we just believed that the Romney camp would come out, uh, you know, earlier. And, you know, we, we had been in a, you know a tough primary, too, and it just didn 't feel like it would be that kind of length uh, you know at the beginning, uh, so that's one thing uh, you know obviously we were uh, we know, we knew in the debates we knew that Mitt Romney was a good debater, and and the president hadn't debated in a long time, um, and so you know he did a lot of preparation and you know I think that the campaign the thing about that we were not necessarily ready for the outcome of the first debate and how that would change the electorate um, <laughs> but 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 the thing that that we did have is that we always believed it would be close. And before that, some of the, the poll numbers that we would see in certain states, you know, people could get you know really excited. Oh, look, we're up seven or so in, in Ohio. But it goes back to that sort of uh, underlying assumption we had that this is going to be a close race, that it was never going to be outside the margin, that we were going to have to grind it out by running the best grassroots campaign that we could at the very local level by empowering. Uh, people, and really including them in the campaign, and, and get there to get to 270 in multiple different pathways. And we knew we had to have multiple pathways. And, you know, we had to also have messages that really worked in some of those states. Um, you know, we had to push the auto message more in Ohio than we necessarily would in, you know, Florida. Uh, one last one.
2: Give us a sense, because I don't think we really have it, <clears throat> of the level of confidence of the president at the beginning of this campaign. Um, so,
13: so Messina and will could talk more about this uh, tomorrow because they, they know him better than I do and spent more time with him. Uh, but you know, everybody that's that's been around him, many of you re- reporters certainly have. He's a pretty confident guy. Um, <laughs> you can laugh. Um, <laughs> he was, you know, he, he 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 thought he could win this race from the beginning, and he never uh, wavered from that. Um, and our analytics never wavered from that. Uh, we believed even after uh, the first debate that we were still in a strong position. Because we fundamentally believed that what we were doing on the ground, with our paid media, with all the assets of the campaign, digitally, et cetera, that we were going to have a, an electorate that looked more like 2008 than 2010 and didn't look like 2004 either, just based on how the demographic is, had changed. So, uh, you know, he, I think he started confident, and I think he was confident all the way through. Uh, I think he had a couple of moments that, that got him working a little harder. Um, October, October but, uh, 3rd. Yes.
2: Rick.
1: Yeah. Just a a couple of things, Jeremy. One is just to get—I want to get a sense for everyone of the president's engagement and how early that was. And I know you said Axelrod and Messina saw him more, but when was the first time you met in a meeting with the president where he talked about the reelection?
13: I mean, honestly, like that wasn't my role. My job Uh was to be out in the battleground states. I wasn't—I actually—and I I, I learned this from Carson, who was the field director in 2008. I don't think that that John Carson and and the president ever saw each other in the 2008 campaign. And so it wasn't my job to be in any rooms, you know, with him. Uh, I, I was fortunate okay. what I did. So, so those guys will talk more about that. My job was to be in Ohio and Iowa and other places. In your job, how did you that. ever feel his
1: hand directly in any way? Like, did anyone oh, say yeah. Obama want, like, sure, give us sure, an example. Sure. I mean,
13: you know, every, look, Jim was uh, an and, and ax, uh, and then when Pluff was around, you know, they, those guys, you know, were having meetings with him and relaying exactly where his head was, what he wanted to see, what we were showing him, and so, you know, from the beginning, it wasn't like I was in the room with him, but those guys were in the room. Conveying and what he what's wanted. something to give us a sense of his
1: engagement and how sharp he was about this reelect? What are some of the things that were passed from him to you that you should be yep. aware of?
13: Well, so he came by the office probably before the first debate, but it was probably pretty close. Um, and he came into Mitch and I's office. Stewart and I share an office we had for four years, and um, uh, it's really glad. I'm really glad that he stopped dipping, uh, but. Uh, so he, he he came in our office and he you know he was you know, talking uh, to both of us. And it was very clear that he, you know, he was engaged. We were talking numbers in Ohio. We were talking demographic numbers. We were talking polling numbers. We were talking how many offices were, you know, what are we were seeing from our voter contact. We were talking about the number of staff we have on the ground. So it was very clear that he was engaged in what we when were doing.
1: Were, when you were, Obama was talking numbers. Yes. The offices. He knew all that yes. off the top of his head. And yeah. when, how early was that?
13: I mean, this was probably like September or something like that. Of 2012. But he was engaged like that from the beginning. I mean, obviously, he had a, he had a very big day job, and so he wasn't, worried about, he wasn't worried about how many offices I had opened or staff I had in Ohio. But, you know, come September, he was very focused on battleground states. And, you know, when he went out, and uh, he became very close, I think, to a lot of our state directors. Because, you know, in 2008, the map was a little bit bigger. You know, he was, we were spending time in Montana and other places. You know, he was in Ohio all the time. He was in Iowa all the time. And so he would talk to those guys, you know, or, or, or the, the ladies that ran you know, our campaigns in these states, and he got to know them very well and knew what was happening in the states and would talk to them before his events uh, in depth. Let me also ask you, were the reelects of Bush and uh, Clinton
1: relevant to your campaign? Did you take away anything specifically from them?
13: Sure, sure. And, you know, uh, and Messina's a, a, a better student of history um, than I am, but but those guys read a lot of the books and, 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 and studied a lot of what they did, uh, particularly, you know, the, the best analogy was to look at what uh, Bush did in, in 2004 and just learn from uh, what he did and take what we could. So I know they talked to folks that had been engaged in that, but more importantly, read a lot about what had happened, looked at the maps, looked at the analytics um, to, to, to try to learn from that. Um, and then, obviously, you know, we learned what we could from the Clinton folks and people that um, had been engaged in that. That was a very different right. Uh, election, but there are still lessons to take from it. And just my last question, that is, you said that you
1: all thought Romney would be uh, the nominee all along. Was there ever a fleeting moment in your head, Jeremy, where you thought for a second that one of the other candidates in this room just might win the nomination? Uh,
13: if, personally, personally. If I think if, personally. if Rick Santorum had built a grassroots and had the funding to do it, uh, a grassroots campaign in some of these early states and and things had gone a little bit different on election night in Iowa where he won, but it didn't it wasn 't perceived that way. Uh, I think he potentially could have won uh, if he had built that grassroots uh, campaign in some of those early states and I had worked in South Carolina in the two thousand and eight primary, and I felt like that was going to be a very, very difficult. Uh, you know very difficult state uh, for the Romney folks and then if somebody could come out early w- you know get a get a win in Iowa do well in New Hampshire they could go down and win South Carolina and then put him in a really tough spot
1: was that the jeremy theory or were other that people that was my think? theory okay yeah
13: <laughs> well
2: that yeah. counts for a lot well, right, thank you well hear the other theories tomorrow yeah. sure. jeremy sure. thank yeah, you yeah, thank very you. much Uh, we have come to the end. Thank you all. Uh, this is the appetizer for tomorrow's entree. Um, we'll h- find out how all these plans went awry, or most of them. Uh, thanks to all the campaigns for.
3: Before everybody gets.